Lord, the truth is every one of us, every day of our life, has needs that are bigger than our ability to provide for. It's true for us as individuals. It's true for the people we know, family and friends. And Lord, it's just a great reminder to entrust ourselves into the hands of a loving God, which we do again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're back in Daniel this morning. I didn't realize what a big disappointment it was going to be to get out of Daniel for two or three weeks. Um, So we're back there. Uh, Chris Walton spoke, I think, just a week ago. And Chris got up here like a seasoned veteran, but he only turned the microphone on one click instead of two. And so all the people that wanted to hear Chris's talk are coming up short, I think. I don't know how well it came out on the other mic. Just an FYI, Chris. I saw the red light on and thought you were good to go. It was on standby. Anyway, uh, you might ask Eric. I don't know if it can even be heard from last week. We can barely hear him. Okay, so anyway, if you want to check out last week's, it might be a task, but you'll be able to hear that. It was very, very encouraging. Uh, let's see, Easter Sunday, we finished the first half of Daniel, chapter 6. You remember with that first half, we closed all the famous stories. We've, we're done with the easy part of the book. It kind of gets a little, little tougher in the second half of the book. The first half are all the great stories. Daniel in the lion's den, and the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar in the tree, and the statue. That's all over, and we begin the second half, which is primarily these prophetic visions... Chapters 7, 8, and 9 stand on their own. Chapters 10 through 12 are one extended vision. And it gets a little dicier. It's a, it's a difficult portion of the scriptures in places to get a handle on, especially chapters 10 and 11, but we'll work our way through those. And if you remember in the introduction, one of the things we mentioned was that many scholars, many critics uh, criticize or reject the book of Daniel because they say it is so accurate in its description of history that it couldn't have been written before the fact. It must have been written as history, not as prophecy. So we're entering primarily those portions of this book that get pretty specific on what was in the future for Daniel. At some point, we'll qualify this. We'll tie this in a little bit more with where we're at uh, today. We won't do that this morning. Uh, But we've got six chapters, basically, of prophecy, all of which was future for Daniel, uh, some of which is future for us. So in chapter 7, we'll only take the first half of the chapter this morning up through verse 18. We get in a nutshell, we get the history of the world in these 18 verses, in a nutshell, and then later chapters will expand this. But we're going to cheat as we begin this morning. To make it a little easier to comment on this, I've tried going through this two different ways, and we're going to cheat by starting with the interpretation before we've even read the vision, so that it's a little more freeing for me to tell you as we go, since we know the end from the beginning. Verse 15 through 18 says, After Daniel seen this vision, which we'll read in a minute, Daniel says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions in my mind were alarming me. I approached one of those, probably an angel, who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So all that he's seen that we'll read in just a moment, he's trying to make heads and tails of it, make sense of it. He told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things, and this is it. 
These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So in two sentences, this is the bottom line. Daniel's seen a vision, and the angel tells him, this is the bottom line, there's going to be four kingdoms. And after those four kingdoms, the saints of the highest one get a kingdom that lasts forever. And that's it. That's the history of the world in a nutshell, in two verses right there. We're done. We can go home. That's it. So that's the interpretation of what he's seen, which is what we'll get into right now. And Lord, as we look at these verses together, help us make sense of them. We know that your word is given to edify, to admonish, to correct, to teach and instruct us. And we pray that that will happen this morning as we spend time in Daniel. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 Coming back, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. He wrote down the dream and related the following summary of it. And just to clarify, we're stepping back. If you notice, the first year of Belshazzar, do you remember where Belshazzar fit in in this storyline? He was back two chapters, wasn't he? Chapter 5. He was the last king of Babylon chronologically, if we plug this vision into the storyline we've already read, it would go between chapter 4 and 5. So we've stepped back from where we left Daniel in chapter 6, 12 years, to come to this vision. So he saw a dream, visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And hopefully this sounds a little familiar. If you remember in chapter 2, what troubled King Nebuchadnezzar? He was laying on his bed, and he had these visions, and they troubled him. And so he sought help from his wise men, some understanding or interpretation. Daniel finds himself in the same scenario that Nebuchadnezzar had been in in chapter 2. And in fact, this prophecy specifically follows the same vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had had. You remember in in that vision there was a great statue and it was divided into fours, a metal statue. In this vision, there are four beasts that are going to come up that we'll read about individually here, but the same thought. It is the same vision, if you will, repeated again with a little different take. So it follows the same course, which makes it easier for us to figure some things out too. And in this book of Daniel, you'll see there is great consistency. Even though the appearance of the players changes a little bit in these various chapters, the appearance varies, but the players are the same. So he says in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. When you see this, if you're picturing this in your mind, and this is obviously, it's like Revelation, it's highly graphic. He was seeing things, he's describing to us what he sees. Hopefully, as you read these passages on your own, or as we talk about them this morning, you see something in your mind. That's the way this should work. But it's... It's not just at night that the vision takes place. His vision is dark. It's a dark, stormy sea. If you've seen movies where you just see the wind is whipping and the waves are swirling and the foam is rising, that's what he sees. There's this very graphic, dark, stormy sea. That's what he's looking at. And the sea is stormy because the winds of heaven, the four winds of heaven are blowing it. It's heaven that's stirring up the sea. Now, we already know, because we cheated and read ahead, we know that the sea represents the earth and history and the nations of the earth because he told us what the beasts are that are going to come up out of this swirling pot. In fact, it's interesting later as you look in Revelation, John says in chapter 13, he says, I stood 
on the shore of the sea, and I saw this thing come out. And we're not going to get into the second half of chapter 7. We'll do this next time. It talks about the Roman Empire specifically. It talks about Antichrist. It's a better passage to jump to those things about. But the same type of thing that even in Revelation, standing on a sea and he sees this creature coming up from the sea. Well, the sea is the nations. It's earth It's earth history, and it's the peoples that comprise it. But even from the start of this dark, swirling vision, it's clear that it's heaven. Heaven is controlling the seas. It's the wind from heaven that's stirring the pot in the first place. And again, if you remember in these earlier chapters in Daniel, when Daniel and his buddies are in trouble, we we move back a little further in their story and remember that God started the trouble in the first place. And that's true here. God is still in control. He's never lost it. From the very beginning of all this terrible stuff that's going to come up through these kingdoms, God is still the one in control, sovereignly above all of that. And it's just a reminder that it's the power of heaven that guides and shapes the great sea and humanity on the earth. So it's night, it's dark, the wind is whipping up this great sea. Verse 3, And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first beast looked like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. So, four beasts. The first one comes up out of this swirling cauldron and it looks like a lion that's got eagle's wings on its back. And again, we're tying right back to chapter 2. The first kingdom in the statue in the first kingdom here, king and kingdom, is Babylon. You remember Babylon was the head of gold, the most precious part of the statue. The rest of the metals deteriorate in value in the gold statue. Succeeding kingdoms would be inferior to Babylon. That's the same thing here. The first beast is the king of beasts, the lion, and it's the king of the air, the eagle. So in this picture of these four kingdoms, the first one that comes up is the best. It's the highest, if you will. King of beasts, king of the air. This represents Babylon. Straight across from chapter 2. This is the first kingdom and represents Babylon. When it says that its wings were plucked, it was lifted up off of the ground, made to stand up like a man, and a human mind was given to it, probably a graphic representation of the transformation that happens to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. And if you remember in that, he's, he's lifted up in vanity and pride, and God has already warned him about it. He's beastly in his understanding because he thinks his kingdom and his power came from his ability. And so what does God do? He chops him down. He goes through the seven seasons, probably seven years of insanity until his mind is given back to him. And when his mind's given back to him, just like this, he then praises God and says, I now understand God rules the earth. He gives the kingdoms to whomever he wants. So in this first beast, there's a twist at the end and apparently it's just more fuel for us to believe that Nebuchadnezzar was personally saved in that experience in chapter 4, that he's given a human mind. We'll talk about this beast comparison a little more later, but Nebuchadnezzar was the exception to the rule here. He is transformed in chapter 4, and this appears to give us reference to that spiritual transformation in which instead of being a beast, 
He's made like a man. He's given understanding. So, one beast down, Babylon. Second one to come, verse 5. Behold, some of your translations may say suddenly, good word for this one, another beast, a second one, looking like a bear. It was raised up on one side, so either laying down with one paw up or standing on all four or three with one side up, poised, uh, raised up on one side, three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Just another reminder, they said is probably angels. So in the vision, again, it's clear that this bear doesn't derive power on its own. It's given it. They tell the bear, this is what you're to do. <clears throat> we know from chapter 2, and we also know, we'll get into this in depth in chapter 8, that the second kingdom is Medo-Persia. And in chapter 8, this is graphically presented as a ram. And in that vision, the ram of Medo-Persia has two horns. One is bigger than the other. Just like this bear appears to be more powerful on one side than the other. The Persian portion of the Medo-Persian Empire was the stronger part of that kingdom. And as they merged, Persia actually came up second, but was the much more powerful component of this kingdom. So here, the second kingdom, Medo-Persia, Uh, When it says three teeth in its mouth, most commentators believe this represents the kingdoms that the Medes and the Persians took over. So Babylon was one, and we read about that at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6, we read about Darius the king was actually part of the Medo-Persian Empire, but also the Lydian and the Egyptian kingdoms were also taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. So they would have assumed Babylon... Egypt to the south, and then Lydia would have been all of uh, what would be modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and up into the area of Greece. So the second kingdom that rises looks like a bear. One part is stronger than the other, and it's told to arise and devour much meat. Second kingdom. Third kingdom, verse 6. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, another beast, looking like a leopard. It had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The leopard is this swift, silent killer. And besides that representation, this this beast, this leopard, has four wings on its back. Sometimes four is used as perfection, the four winds of heaven, it's complete. Um, Because we know from chapter 8 that this third beast, this leopard with four wings, represents Greece. Chapter 8 makes this clear if we're not sure from where we're at, chapter 8 lets us know that quite specifically. This would be the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And it's, uh, it's fascinating in history. There's been no king and no kingdom that's taken over more land and conquered more territory or incurred more wealth in a shorter period of time than Alexander the Great did and the kingdom of Greece. He conquered all of the Medo-Persian world and then some in 10 years. And then he died. And when it says four heads, again, this will come up later, but his kingdom was divided into four by his generals. And if you like history, I will get into this further, but it's just fascinating as you read in chapters 10 and 11 the histories that flow from the Greek kingdom and the divisions that flowed from it. So specifically the Seleucid Empire that became the Syrian, what we would modern-day Syria, and then the Ptolemaic Empire was down around Egypt. Cool, huh, Jess? Yeah. Uh, 
Anyway, so this is Greece, this fast, silent killer who devoured the, the known world in ten years and then was divided into four under its four generals. But Alexander the Great and the Greek kingdom would be in chapter, or in verse 6. Verse 7, we need four creatures, and here's the fourth. Verse 7, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, everything that was before it. And it was different from all beasts that was before it, and it had ten horns. It's interesting on this fourth one, which we'll identify as Rome, obviously, but you know the others, they look like an animal. This we know is a beast, but there's no description of it. Other than to say it's got iron teeth and it's got ten horns. He, he comes away being terrified. This thing looks different. The other animals might be scary. This thing is terrifying. And it's some conglomeration. It, it doesn't bear resemblance to a single animal. It can't be described but like a lion or a bear. It's different. And this kind of goes along with the chapter 2 where it said this last empire would be this conglomeration of iron and clay mixed together. These components that normally wouldn't be fit together. That's the same thing we've got here. Kind of part animal, almost part machine. Uh, steel with something that looks like a critter. He says, while I was contemplating the horns, ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, we'll actually revisit this verse uh, with some others next time as we talk about uh, Rome specifically. Uh, but this fourth beast, as we said, it's more terrifying than any of the others. It's the Roman Empire, and it is the fourth. As, as we look back historically, we know it was the Roman Empire that took over from Greece. So that's our four beasts. We've seen in this swirling night vision, the sea is stormy and troubled, and out of it come these creatures, and we know that they were the four empires that would rule the world. Having worked through those... Uh, question that comes up to my mind is why does God use beasts or animals to represent these empires? Why does he use beasts or animals? You know, in chapter 2, it's a statue. Same kingdoms. I suspect part of that was, hi guys, I didn't even see you up there. In chapter 2, you've got a statue. You've got the king who is actually the head of one of these empires sees the vision and God shows him a statue. And it's made of precious or semi-precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. When he tells his own man Daniel about it, he says they're beasts. They're like animals, not just precious metals, but they're beastly. And I suspect Psalm 49, in my mind, fills us in on this. Psalm 49, verse 12 and 20, speaking of a of, of man primarily as an individual, but just we're going to apply it across the board here. Psalm 49.12 says, Man in his pomp, man in his power, in his glory, with all the things you can lay on any man, will not endure, won't last, he can't. He is like the beasts that perish. And in verse 20, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. 
you take man, but you cut off understanding from God, the, the, the knowledge of God, a true understanding of reality. God sits in heaven. He rules on the earth. And no matter how much glory or power you give him, God says that man is like a beast before him. David says, I think it's in Psalm 73, when he's troubled as he looks around at evil people prospering. And he's got this attitude that he's angry at God. He said, I was like a beast. Why? Well, because he wasn't rightly related to God. And here the thought seems to be that these are caricaturized as beasts because they lack any real understanding or acknowledgement of God. And that's why with the picture of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, when he's given the mind of a man, the thought is that he, that he moves from the realm of the ignorant, darkened beast. He's like a real man now because he's connected back to his creator. He understands that God rules, that God is the one he bows to. So the kings and the kingdoms fail to take into account God and his ultimate reality. Romans 1 says, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. And it says they became futile in their speculations. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's the thought here. I've got all this power, I've got all this wealth, but God says you're, you're a beast, you're like an animal, you have no real sense. So I tend to look back at Greek history and art and I see beauty and God looks at Greece and sees a beast or I look at Rome and see this nation that brought law and order into many parts of the world and I see some positive and God looks at it and he sees this beast this animal that lacks understanding Uh, I was teasing Jess earlier we're in Kansas City at the Nelson Museum and they've got pretty good display of Egyptian artifacts, some pretty impressive pieces. And we've studied Egypt as a family, and it's great fun. And it's a great display. You see these sculptures of real people, as real as you or I, who lived 5,000 years ago. And there's a statue of them right in front of you. And you know that 5,000 years ago, some Egyptian that you and I don't know was carving this thing. And, And a real person was sitting for his portrait in stone to be chiseled out. It's It floors you. And that, that right in front of you, it's time and it's, and it's vast amounts of time that separate us. But this is this real piece of a real life from a real empire before. And it's boggling. But, but more than that, thinking about this issue of what's the relationship of the kingdoms to God, it kind of tempers our appreciation when I re- remember... And, Most of this stuff, it was created for people who were beasts in an empire that was a beast before God. No understanding, no right appreciation of who God was. And you remember that in the Exodus, God works these ten miracles because he's showing Egypt that God was stronger than all of their gods, all of their false gods. And their chasing after eternal life was by being mummified and buried in these vaults with, all kinds of stuff that would follow them in the afterlife. In other words, it didn't bear on reality. No right relationship with God. No understanding of life as it really was or is. And so as much as we love looking at these statues, on one hand, on the other, you realize that they all reflect this deficient, this beastly view of life. Life without the real or true God. It's deficient.
We'll jump back in at verse 9. We've said all along that God starts this swirling cauldron on the sea, that God is in control. Look at verse 9. When this fourth beast, this fourth empire rises out of the sea, we change gears. And it's as if Daniel's been looking at the sea. Now his eyes raise up to heaven. And it says he sees, he's looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, his vesture, his clothing was like white snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. We don't know if this is a chariot. We don't know if these are the wheels like the vision in Ezekiel. But the throne is on fire. Wheels around the throne are flaming. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. You remember when God came down on Sinai, it said this fire from heaven came down. It says our God is a consuming fire. This is probably representing God the Father, and he's, he and everything around him is flaming with fire. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. I love this passage because we've been going from this stormy sea with these beastly kingdoms of the earth. And as we read history, it just seems like things happen by chance. But in this passage, it reminds us. It's as if earth is down here and God's up here and he pulls up his chair to get close during this fourth kingdom. He's getting close because he's going to become intimately involved again. He's been involved all along, but he's going to bring in judgment at this point. He's going to set things right as he determines to do. And the way the Father is represented here helps us with this thought about what he's going to do. The first thought is that he's spotless and pure. He's white, representing purity. Spotless and pure. So he is a fit entity to bring judgment on the scenes that we've seen. He is pure. He can judge fairly. When it says his throne and wheels are like flaming fire and this fire is coming out from in front of him, he is holy and he has power. And he is the one who has the power and the ability to bring judgment. He not only is pure, but he is holy and he has great power. When it describes that all the hosts of heaven, the thought here is as kind of as far as your eye could see, here's God and these thrones, As far as your eye can see, there's just myriads of angels, perhaps humans at this point, not clear, but all waiting on him. All of heaven, all of those in the heavenly realm are doing what they should do. They're waiting upon this ancient of days. So he's the ultimate authority. And then when it says the books are opened, it reminds us that when God brings judgment, it's not like you and I generally do. It's not arbitrary. It's based on fact and truth and reality. And we see the same picture in Revelation 19. When humanity stands before Jesus, those who are not saved to be judged, it says the same thing. Books are opened. God just doesn't emotionally fly off the handle or the cuff and make some judgment on the moment. He he opens the books. The judgments he makes are based on reality. Life as it really happened. Life as it occurred. So... During the swirling mass, the fourth beast comes out and God draws near to judge, to bring about his plans. Verse 11, he says, I kept looking 
He's looked at from the sea to the heaven. Now he looks back from heaven to the sea. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast, this last fourth beast, was slain. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, those previous kingdoms, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So God is set up. He's gotten ready for judgment. And he has judged the beast. The fourth beast has uh, been consumed by his fire in judgment. These other empires exist in some fashion or form for a limited period of time after this judgment. We'll talk about that later. And then verse 13 and 14, I kept looking, vision goes back up to heaven again in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I take it that in this vision we see Jesus the Son coming to God the Father and being given the kingdoms of the earth. Revelation 11:15 says, the seventh angel sounded, there arose loud voices in heaven and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. We'll talk about this later again. Revelation treats this in depth, but about Jesus, God the Son, coming down to the earth and taking up his throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is certainly part of the fulfillment of the promise made to David, that David would always have a son to sit on his throne, and that his son's kingdom would last forever. That certainly speaks well beyond Solomon, who died like his father David. My wife was gracious enough the other night to go see the scorpion king with me. Teresa Langhofer joked, said, Surely you're not really seeing that. We like the mummy for some reasons, and I thought this would be grand and epic scale and uh, save your money. But uh, there was a memorable line at the end of the movie, the scorpion king has, has defeated the evil Memnon, and now he's going to rule over the kingdom. He's the new king. And as he's contemplating his kingdom and his new empire, he's kind of wondering, where will this all go? And the priestess next to him wisely says, Nothing lasts forever, and that is the fate of every kingdom. Nothing lasts forever, and yours won't, your kingdom won't last forever either. What a, what a great bit of wisdom in a movie with very, very poor dialogue. This was a great line to end on. Nothing lasts forever, that's the fate of every kingdom. That's true when we look at the kingdom of this world and the four beasts that come out. The exception to the rule, though, is this last kingdom. This last kingdom that Jesus, God the Son, will come and set up in fulfillment of lots of promises. His is the kingdom that will never end. As I think about this, I had great difficulty deciding even how to present chapter 7. There's uh, so much in all of this, but 
this, this view of life, life on the earth, seen from God's perspective, is that the kingdoms of this world are beasts compared to him. And that compared to the kingdom he'll set up, everything else is deficient. It's like an animal. This isn't like the pet you have at home that loves and adores you with big brown eyes or that lays on your lap. This is like a critter that won't be tamed. This is like a wild beast that would never be domesticated. That's kind of the thought here. And it makes me think, as I look at my life on planet Earth and I look around at me, you know, Jesus told his disciples, you're in the world, but you're not of it. And sometimes it's hard to keep that line drawn for us because we go along, we work at jobs, we make income, we've got to buy houses, cars, there's so many things to take care of. It's easy for our view, like Daniel's at times, to focus on the sea and the earth and not heaven. And yet the scriptures make it clear that earth is not our home. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors on this earth. So when you think of an ambassador, he belongs to one country. He lives in another to represent someone else's interest. He has no confusion about what his home is. He has no confusion about his citizenship. He's not a citizen where he lives. He's a citizen in another country. And that's the thought here. So when I look at the world around me, I'm questioning myself, am I seeing beauty or am I seeing the beast, so to speak, as God does? And while on one hand, because we're created in God's image and because even in this marred sense, we still reflect God's glory, we can look at history and we can look at art and culture and we can see beautiful things and order. You can go to the museums and see paintings and things from the past and it is great and there's beauty there, but it's all marred. And it's all deficient. And until we lift our eyes as Daniel did on heaven, we're just part of this realm that's, that's beastly because we lack real understanding. And the thing on this world is this world as a world will never gain the heart of a man as Nebuchadnezzar did. You know, in the end, in fact, listen to what Peter says. Peter says in Second Peter, according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why? Because God's got to burn this one up because it's deficient. And while there's redemption and individuals come out of it, the only kingdom in the end that survives is the one Jesus set up. And the only people who will be in that kingdom are the ones who, like Nebuchadnezzar, have been humbled and then raise their eyes to heaven as a man instead of a beast and, and understand, God, you're it. You're the ultimate reality. So on one hand, this is really encouraging for us as a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've been born again, then you're part of this new kingdom already. And when we read the Gospels or when we pray, Thy kingdom come, this is what we're praying about. Ideally, in the end, it's Jesus' kingdom being set up on the earth for a period of time, and then this earth and heaven being consumed, and, and He'll set up His eternal kingdom in which righteousness dwells, and you and I will be there. And Egypt, which is a dusty faded memory of its former self, it won't, probably won't even come to mind. The, the kingdoms of this world, they'll, they'll be maybe a brief memory for us. But God's kingdom, a kingdom where righteousness dwells and where we understand who God is and what He's like. We have the spirit of a man. We're like the son of man now. We know God. We belong to Him. And we're part of this kingdom. That's the future we're headed to. And I think it's particularly appropriate 
with all the things going on in the Middle East, it's a particularly appropriate to remember where we're heading. It's helpful for me to remember that life as we know it, it's, it's going to be short and it's going to be over. And we're getting on to something bigger and better. And so when you and I look at life around us, remember that we're part of this deficient system. But there's redemption individually. And in the end, there's redemption for man in this new kingdom that Jesus himself will set up. But that's the only place there's redemption. That's the only place there's ultimate reality and sanity. And we become, we move from being beastly ourselves to like Nebuchadnezzar with the spirit of a man when we recognize heaven rules and recognize that the redemption that Jesus provides is what it takes for us to move from the life of a beast, the mind of a beast, to that of a man to understand that heaven and heaven's God rules. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, speaking of Jesus, when he has abolished all rule, authority, and power, he must reign, the Son, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him in the end so that God may be all and in all. That's the future. God is all and in all. That's paradise restored. That's paradise restored better than paradise was. Let me close by reading you a poem. It's brief, and it's written about America. As I read this, please don't think of the United States. We, like the rest of the kingdoms of the world, as you know, if you look around, we're beastly as a nation. We started on great high and moral ground, but we've degenerated like all other kingdoms on the earth have. So even though this is written about America, when you hear America, you think of heaven. This is the author comparing Europe with his home in America. It's Henry Van Dyke. He says, "'Tis fine to see the old world and travel up and down among the famous palaces and cities of renown, to admire the crumbly castles and the statues of the kings. But now I think I've had enough of antiquated things." So it's home again and home again, America for me. My heart is turning home again, and there I long to be, in the land of youth and freedom beyond the ocean bars, where the air is full of sunlight and the flag is full of stars. Oh, London is a man's town, there's power in the air, and Paris is a woman's town with flowers in her hair. And it's sweet to dream in Venice, and it's great to study Rome. But when it comes to living, there is no place like home. I like the German fir woods in green battalions drilled. I like the gardens of Versailles with flashing fountains filled. But oh, to take your hand, my dear, and ramble for a day in the friendly western woodland where nature has her way. I know that Europe's wonderful, yet something seems to lack. The past is too much with her and the people looking back. But the glory of the present is to make the future free. We love our land for what she is and what she is to be. Oh, it's home again and home again, America for me. I want a ship that's westward bound to plow the rolling sea to the blessed land of room enough beyond the ocean bars where the air is full of sunlight and the flag is full of stars. I think that's just a great reminder of what our attitude should be to life on earth. 
We're that traveler in Europe thinking about home in America. We're this pilgrim. We're this ambassador in the kingdoms of the earth for now thinking about the place that's really our home. That's where we're going. That's where we're going to return to. That's where sanity and righteousness and God is. Not here and now. Here and now, we're sharing the gospel with others so that like Nebuchadnezzar, they change a heart that's like a beast for that of a man. They move from the empires or the kingdoms of this world to God's kingdom where righteousness dwells. Lord, it's just a great, great reminder again that you are sovereignly and ultimately in control, not only of the small movements in our life, but of the great sweep of history and history's empires. Lord, help us to enjoy the good things you give us in this life to enjoy. Help us look with pleasure on the things that man, even in his marred state, has produced because it still reflects in some ways your glory. But Lord, in the end, help nothing short of you, yourself, your King, your Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and his kingdom. Nothing short of you and that kingdom, Lord, displace other things from our heart. Help us to keep our eyes on heaven, where our citizenship is, from whence also we await a Savior. Lord Jesus, keep our hearts close to yours. Help us act as your agents on the earth in a wise way. Accomplish redemption in the lives of others through us, Lord. Make us like the Son of Man. Give us the Spirit of Man, a true one who knows you. Keep us from the beastly side, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.